It is a privilege to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, this particular Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday with each of you. We are glad that you are here. Um, If you're a guest with us, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And this is the portion of our time together that we take each and every week uh, where we deliberately read from God's Word and then take time uh, to try to unpack what God's Word is saying and what that means for our life now. And the way that we tend to do that here at Redemption Hill is we, we start at the beginning of the book of the Bible and then we just go verse by verse till we get to the end of it. Uh, We don't tend to jump around uh, week in and week out. We start and we make our way through to the end because we want to understand what God's word is saying to God's people in its right context. So this morning, though it's Easter Sunday morning, though the calendar actually says it's a holiday, it's really Resurrection Sunday every week for us. And this week, we're just going to continue on in our our series that we've been been working on in the book of 1 John. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you want to open it up to the book of 1 John, if you don't have a Bible with you, with you, uh, you are please feel free to grab one of the Bibles that are on the tray tables behind the chair sections. Uh, please grab that, use that. If you don't own a Bible, uh, let that be our gift to you this morning. Um, but if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of 1 John. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read our text for the morning, and then I'm going to try to walk through it piece by piece and, and trust God to help us make sense of it. So before we do that, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get going. Actually, let me do one more thing that you'll appreciate. Let me actually turn a clock on. Because if you're a guest with us today, you don't know I have a tendency to talk for a long time. So let's pray. God, thank you uh, again for the privilege that we have uh, this morning to gather together, uh, to read your word, um, and to have confidence as your people Uh, to know that your word is true. Your word is truth, and you've given us that confidence, uh, and we celebrate that confidence today. uh, You've given us that confidence through the resurrection of your son Jesus from the dead. Uh, Lord, that is your public stamp of approval, that all that Jesus has said and all that Jesus has done is true. Uh, And Lord, we ask this morning that 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 be our confidence. Uh, We ask this, Lord, that, uh, that it would shape us and it would conform us, and that this morning we would be conformed in a greater degree into the measure and likeness and the image of your son Jesus for his glory and his namesake. Amen. First John chapter three, we're going to start in verse 19. I'm going to read it and then we're going to walk through it. So here's what John has to say. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we have kept his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So what is that text really all about? Let me just give you a big picture of of what this text of scripture is really all about. It's really all about confidence. 
It's really all about assurance. Uh, John, in fact, has written this entire letter to the church that they would have confidence and assurance in what they have believed to be true about the person and work of Jesus. Confidence in the objective truths about Jesus, his life, his death, and now his subsequent resurrection. And along with that confidence and the truthfulness about the message they've heard about Jesus, John wants them to have confidence and assurance in what that message means for their life. What what difference that message makes for the way that they live every single day and the circumstances and the situations and the temptations that they face. It's ultimately about confidence and the whole letter is about confidence. And so let me start by asking you two very simple questions just to kind of set the stage for you. First question, what do you think God feels about you? What do you think God feels about you right now? Probably more grammatically correct, I should say, how do you think God feels about you right now? Do you think he's pleased with you or frustrated with you? Is he disappointed in you? Is he angry with you? Is he overjoyed with you? How do you think God feels about you right now? And second question, what's the basis for your answer to the first one? What's the basis for the answer to the question, how do you think God feels about you right now? Is your answer based looking back on all the ways you tried to do something better this week than you did last week? What's your basis for the answer to the question, how do you think God feels about you right now? If we're really honest and I were just to go around the room and and solicit um, anonymous answers, uh, the, question, the answer probably most likely would be, it really depends upon what moment in the day you ask me. And so for the majority of you, you're here on Easter Sunday in church, so you probably feel like God feels uh, okay with you at least. At best right now, he's moderately pleased with you because you're here and not somewhere else. But here's the thing, John does not want the church John does not want those who are followers of Christ, those who are Christians, to live with such instability. He he doesn't want those who are of Christ to live with such uncertainty about what God thinks and feels about them. But the reality of it is, as a good, wise pastor, John knows that Christians are far too prone to doubt and uncertainty. And so this is what he's getting after this morning in the text. You'll see in, in verse 20, the first part of verse 20, John's talking to the church and he looks at the church and he says, whenever your heart condemns you or whenever our heart condemns us, I mean, that should be a measure of encouragement to to some degree this morning. I mean, John is at least being honest enough to acknowledge the fact that even those who are followers of Christ, those who are to have a certain confidence and unshakableness about their assurance are are prone to doubt. They're, They're prone to uncertainty. There are times when our heart does condemn us. And so before we unpack the rest of what he says, let's try to define some terms. When John is talking about the heart, John is not talking about that biological organ in the middle of your chest that pumps blood to the rest of your body. That's not what he has in mind. 
When the Bible talks about the heart, it uses that term, it uses that word to refer to the entire inner man, the entire inner soul. It it, it comprises the mind and and the thoughts that that inform the affections and the emotions that then give rise to our actions and in what we do. It's the whole man, it's motivation, it's intention, it's desire, it's thought, it's will. It's the whole inner soul, it's the whole inner you. That's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the heart. And one aspect of our heart, one aspect of our inner man that God has graciously given every single person, every person who's ever been born on this earth has been given an aspect of this inner man by God, and that is called the conscience. The conscience is part of the heart. It's part of the inner man. And what does the conscience do? The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2, verse 15, you don't have to go there, I'll I'll actually explain it to you. He says that our conscience is part of our inner man that testifies to us. It testifies to us about what our affections are rooted in, what our thoughts are set on, what our desires are aimed towards, and what our actions and what our, our motivations and what our behavior is built upon. It testifies to us about ourselves. Mechanical images trying to explain spiritual things always break down at some point. Uh, But if I was to give you a picture, you can kind of imagine your conscience a bit like a thermostat. Are you all familiar with a thermostat? You have a thermostat in your house or maybe you have multiple thermostats in your house. And and that thermostat is set to a particular space and anytime there's a significant change in the climate, that thermostat kicks on and either AC comes on and gets cooler or the heat comes on and it gets warmer. But it's regulating. To some degree, our conscience, part of our inner man, our heart, is, is regulating our, our intentions and our desires, our, our motivations, our wants, and, and our behaviors. And it testifies to us about ourselves. And ultimately, our conscience either excuses our intentions and our attitudes, our motivations, our behaviors, or it accuses us of those very things. It's a universal gift that God has given to every single person on this earth. If you were like me in high school, you were supposed to read the Shakespeare play Macbeth. And if you were like me, you probably only read the cliff notes. Some of you probably read the entire thing. But even if you only read the cliff notes, there's a very famous scene in scene five, a section of scene five, that's even in the cliff notes. And this is a kind of a picture of this universal reality of the conscience. If you remember the story, Lady Macbeth was intent on convincing Macbeth that it was necessary for him to kill the king of Scotland, to kill Duncan. Do you remember that part of the story? So she entices Macbeth to go and to, to kill Duncan. And what begins to happen is Lady Macbeth's conscience begins to get the best of her. It begins to convict her and accuse her of her actions and of her intent. And if you remember the story, her conscience begins to even get the best of her and rule over her such a degree that they have to call a doctor in. Because every night she's waking up and though she's dead asleep, she's wide awake and she's wandering around the house mumbling and doing things. Do you remember? And so finally they call the physician in and they say, what can you make of what she's doing? And he said, what's she really doing? And in comes Lady Macbeth. She walks in from the door. And you remember she, she's sitting there and she's just rubbing her hands. She's just got her hands going and they're trying to make sense. What, what's she really doing? She starts mumbling. Out, out, damn spot. Will these hands, will they never be clean? It's the smell of blood. It still remains. All of the perfume of Arabia could never sweeten these hands conscience was at work. 
It's a universal gift of God to every single person. It, it, it testifies to us of our heart, of our motivations, of our affections, of our desires. For those who are followers of Christ, our, our conscience is heightened all the more. See, our conscience begins to be instructed by the Spirit of God that is living and working in us along with the Word of God. And so our conscience gets even more sensitive. Our conscience gets even more heightened. And that's a wonderful thing because in conjunction with the work of God's Spirit and the work of God's Word, we are convicted of our affections and our attitudes and our wants and our desires and our behaviors that are contrary to God's will and God's glory and then that drives us towards repentance and confession and agreement with God and the receiving of the forgiveness of God through the person of Jesus. The conscience is a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. But here's the problem. It it can actually go haywire. Your conscience can actually go haywire. It can, it can misfire, just like the thermostat in your house can misfire. And there's two big ways that our conscience can misfire. In, in Paul's letter to his, his friend Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, he speaks of one way that our conscience can mix, misfire, and he says that our conscience can actually become seared. It can become sealed off. You know, if you ever cook and you, and you sear a piece of meat, you close it off to keep the juices inside of it. You can burn it such that nothing can get in and nothing can get out. It can get seared. Our conscience can be seared to to the biblical norms, the biblical standards, the the grace of God. Our our conscience through continued sin can become desensitized and ultimately, ultimately seared and closed off to the glory of God. There's another way, though, our conscience can go haywire. Another way our conscience can misfire. It, It can actually become hypersensitive. So just like your thermostat, it, it, can, it can break and it can actually not register anything. No matter what temperature change is going on in your house, nothing kicks on. Your thermostat is broken. Our conscience can become seared like that, but it can also become hypersensitive. You can find yourself dealing with accusation of things that really aren't violations of God's law, God's standards. You can find yourself wrestling with accusation in your own heart and in your own soul of things that that aren't sinful in and of themselves. They're just normal human problems. When the conscience goes haywire and the conscience gets hypersensitive, you can find yourself weighed down with accusation in your own heart about things that have already been forgiven. Things that have already been dealt with. What happens when our conscience gets hypersensitive is we get weighed down by things that generally, generally aren't biblical norms and biblical standards. And when this happens, either our conscience gets seared or our conscience gets hypersensitive and begins to go on the fritz, what happens ultimately is all sense of confidence and all sense of assurance about what God feels about us and thinks about us begins to get eroded. And so what, what triggers the conscience? I mean, what makes this thing actually go off? Well, one, the simple answer is sin. Any violation in thought, in affection, in deed, any violation of God's glory, any sin as John has defined it for us already as lawlessness. It it should set our conscience off. But here's the thing. John has been very clear. For those of you who have been with us, you've heard this over and over. For those of you that are guests, let me explain to you. John has been very clear in this entire letter that when there is conviction of sin, 
and the Holy Spirit and the word of God are at work in the soul, that conviction of sin drives a follower of Christ to confession. Confession is simply agreeing with God about the nature of your sin and then receiving from God the forgiveness that comes through the person and work of Jesus. That's the right response of conviction. But John doesn't mention anything here in this passage about confession. He doesn't mention anything here about the need to confess. He says, when your heart condemns you, which means there are going to be times that you are going to find yourself wrestling with accusation and condemnation from your very own heart, your very own conscience that has nothing to do with anything inherently sinful that you've done. What tends to happen is we, let me just give you a very simple explanation for this if I can. What tends to happen is we tend to take good things, good desires, good wants, and raise them to a standard where they exceed God's biblical standards for us in our life. We tend to take our personal convictions, our personal preferences about things that God gives us freedom on, and we tend to elevate them to the status of biblical standard, and then we try to place that on ourselves and on other people. And when we fail to live up to those extra biblical standards, those extra biblical personal convictions, we begin to wrestle with this sense of accusation as though we have now failed. And we put this on other people. You commonly call it a guilt trip. The Bible says it's, you can find yourself condemned. You can find your own heart accusing you because you've set the internal temperature the internal thermostat of your own soul to the wrong place. You're actually believing things that aren't actually true. We're raising personal preferences and convictions to a place where they're exceeding biblical standards and biblical norms. Your conscience can misfire. And here's the thing. I don't want you to miss this this morning. Conviction Conviction is actually a very good thing. In the Christian life, conviction of sin is a very good thing. It's a necessary thing for a healthy relationship with God and with his people. Don't don't miss this this morning. Conviction is a very good thing. There's nothing wrong with having a right sense of guilt for violating God's glory. If that conviction and that sense of guilt is produced by the Holy Spirit and it alerts us to our affection or our desire or our attitude or our action that is in violation against God and then drives us to confession and repentance, that's a very good thing. It's a healthy thing. Conviction is good. Don't miss this. Condemnation, not so much. Conviction is a very good thing. Condemnation, not so much. See, our our heart can be so prone to take personal preferences and personal convictions and personal standards of of Christian righteousness and Christian living and exalt them to a place that's higher than the standards of the Bible themselves. Our heart is so fickle. It's so fickle. We find ourselves living under condemnation of things that God hasn't actually condemned us for. I think in this text, John is actually dealing with a situation where the church, where Christians have have seemed to have fallen short or at least have now perceived themselves to have fallen short of a particular standard. 
And now they're experiencing condemnation, not necessarily good biblical conviction. They're they're wrestling with a a sense of failure and, and unworthiness and unforgivableness, if that's a word. I'll coin it if not. Unforgivableness. They're, they're beyond what they have believed to be true about God's love and God's forgiveness. There's preoccupation with these feelings of failure that just give way to this sense of condemnation, of being beyond the love and, and the grace of God. It's not hard to see if that's not dealt with, that that can produce significant, significant discouragement and an erosion of confidence and assurance in the life of a Christian. And this is what John does not want to see happen, but he knows is so, is so at times natural, natural for us, even if we're followers of Christ. So how do you silence the condemning heart? And when your heart is condemning you, how do you silence the condemning heart? Or as John says, how do you reassure your heart before God? Some of your Bibles will say, how do you set your heart at rest in his presence? I mean, this is what we all want. Whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, all of us want an answer to dealing with our heart, to dealing with our conscience when it condemns us. I mean, this is what Macbeth was after for his wife. It's a universal experience. Do you remember his response to what was going on with his wife? Listen to what he said. See if you can relate. Can, this is what he said to the physician. Can you not minister to a mind that's diseased? Can you not pluck from the memory a deeply rooted sorrow? Can you not burn out the written troubles of the brain and with some sweet oblivious antidote cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart? We all want the sweet, oblivious antidote to a condemning heart. We all want our heart to be reassured, to be set at rest before God. So how does it happen? John gives two ways that we can set our hearts at rest before God when they're condemning us. The first way that John gives us to do this is to remind ourselves, to hunt within ourselves and and celebrate and treasure within ourselves all the evidences of God's grace at work in us. Where where do I get that? Look Look at the very beginning in verse 19. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. By this we shall have confidence. By this we shall have assurance and know that we are of the truth. That by this looks backwards. So it looks back to what we talked about last week. And last week, what John was unpacking for the church is that you can have confidence and assurance in knowing that you have been rescued and transformed by God when the sacrificial love of Christ that you have received and that you cherish is then reflected in your life towards others. When you can see in your life a self-sacrificial love towards other brothers and sisters in Christ that reflects the same sacrificial love that you have received from Jesus, you can set your mind at ease. And in the midst of whatever's condemning you, you are of the truth. One way that you can set your heart at rest in his presence when your heart is so desperately trying to condemn you is by looking at the evidences of his grace already at work and seen in your life. 
What were you like before Jesus changed you? Look at the places where so much of you has changed. Where once you had no regard for his word, now there's a delight in his word, a desire for his word. There's a treasuring of his grace where before you sought to be a law unto yourself. Where have you changed? How have you changed? John says, take a gracious yet realistic look at your life. The standard to look for is not perfection, but ongoing, continual progress and conformity into the image and likeness of Christ. Don't focus on your failures and what sin is still present in your life. No, focus on the work of the Holy Spirit. How has he changed you? How is he changing you? Some of us tend to focus on the sin that still remains, the battle that still remains. Well, John's already told us That sin will be present in us and on this earth until Jesus returns to finish what he has already started and to make all things new, including you. That's what he said. Beloved, this is what John said, looking at the church. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be. But when he comes, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. For now, there will still be days where it feels like there's no maturity, where it feels like there's no growth, where it feels in the condemning heart like it's actually been a lost cause. But here's what John says. Look, treasure the evidences of God's grace already at work in you. How has he already changed you? Even if you can put your finger in the midst of that condemnation on the smallest change that's come because of God's spirit at work in you, you can have confidence. And you can set your heart at rest in his presence. But then he gives a second way. And if I had to like, put a hierarchy on the first one or the second one, I would say the second one is greater than the first one. And I think he might just be setting us up with the first one for the second one. One way to set our hearts at rest before him, when our heart is condemning us, when our heart is trying to convince us of our failure, when our heart is trying to convince us of our unloveliness and our unworthiness, how do we set it at rest? Well, we treasure the evidences of grace already at work in us, and then we treasure the character and the grandeur and the majesty of God himself. John says, when your heart's condemning you, how do you want to set it at rest? He tells you something. When your heart's condemning you, he says, remember this, God is greater than your heart. When your heart is condemning you, when when that fickle conscience is condemning you, John says, remember this, God is greater. He is greater than your heart. He's greater than your conscience. John's putting a a contrasting example here throughout the entire letter. John is always comparing and contrasting things. Here he's comparing your conscience, this thing that can go haywire, this thing that can't be trusted. One of my neighbors has a bumper sticker, and this has always gotten me. It's a bumper sticker that says, let your conscience be your God. So, surest way to shipwreck, let your conscience be your God. Your conscience doesn't have the whole truth. Your conscience can be fickle. It can be telling you things that aren't true. It can become desensitized. John says, remember, when that thing is condemning you, 
When your heart is condemning you, God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your conscience. You you, you say to yourself, in essence, wait a minute. There's something actually greater than my conscience. Uh, This this condemnation that I'm I'm feeling, these voices that I'm hearing that are saying that I'm I'm beyond hope. There's something greater than my heart. There's something greater than my conscience. There's a higher standard than my conscience and what it's saying about me. God is actually greater than my heart. All of God is greater than your conscience. John has already told us a lot about God. The very beginning of the letter, he said to remember that God is light. He is utterly holy. In God, there is no darkness. He is pure and utter holiness. God is greater than your heart. Even the ways in which you want to punish yourself and extract from yourself some kind of punishment for what it is you're feeling condemned by, God's holiness demands more. It's actually greater than your heart. But here's the great thing. All of God is greater than your heart. God is light. He is holy. He is just. But one of the other chief ways that that John defines the character and the person of God for us, so beautiful, God is love. He is love. In chapter four, verse nine, we'll get there right after Easter, so you come back and you can hear this in its fullest, but John says this, God is love. And in this, so here's an example, here is the way that you can know the love of God that's greater than your heart, what is greater than your conscience. In this, the love of God was made manifest to us that we could see it, that we could know it, that it would come to us, that it was made manifest among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God, John has already said, let me just explain. John has already said that apart from the gracious love of God through his son, Jesus, every single last one of us lives in a spiritual deadness. Every single last one of us lives in a spiritual deadness. In our sin, we are dead to the glories of God. We actually find home in our sin, in the darkness is what John calls us. Our hearts, John said, are lawless. They desire to be a law unto themselves. And for our sin... Because God is light and he is holy and he is just, we deserve the just wrath and punishment for our lawlessness, our rebellion towards God. But the wisdom of God made a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God without compromising in any way, shape, form, or fashion the justice of God. He did that in love so that you could live. So that you could live. And John says, in this is love. 
Not that we've loved God. Not that you ever did anything to earn anything from God or that you ever could. That you ever could obey enough things to deserve this love that he has shown us. In this, John says, is love. Not that you loved him. Not that you earned it. But that he loved you. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins. He sent his son to live his life on this earth, the life that you and I were created by God to live. Jesus lived on this earth in perfect satisfaction in God the Father and in perfect obedience to God the Father out of joy, out of joy found in a relationship with God the Father. He lived the life that we were created to live and then he willingly laid that human life down on a cross. And on the cross... Jesus Christ suffered and exhausted the just wrath of God that is due to you and I for our sin. Jesus, John said, is your propitiation. He is the sacrifice that is perfect enough and sufficient enough to pay the price for our sin. And he died. And three days later, God, being satisfied with Jesus, accepting Jesus' sacrifice in our place for our sin. He vindicated Jesus' sacrifice by raising him from the dead. And the resurrection that we celebrate today is God's public stamp of approval on all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did. This is his love. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he would give his only son to make a wretch, a wretch, his treasure. God's love is greater than the things that you think about yourself. God's love is greater than the things that you feel about yourself. God's love made known to us through his son, Jesus Christ, is greater, is greater even than your sin. God is greater than your conscience. He is greater than your heart. And God, John says, knows everything. There are no surprises with him. He knows everything about you. Your heart doesn't even know everything about you. God knows everything about you. And do you know what he says? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. God says that for those who are in Christ, for those whose lives are hidden in Christ by faith in his Son, do you know what he says? There is therefore now no condemnation for you. Let me read it. I should have marked it. I read it in the first one. Let me, I should have marked it. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse, let's flip over to verse 31. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Do you know what's included in that? Your heart. Your heart. If you are in Christ, God says there is no condemnation for you. So that means when you look at me and say, I understand that God has forgiven me of my sin, but I can't seem to forgive myself, you are saying that your heart is still greater than God. And your fickle conscience is still greater than God. God has said that in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. Who, including yourself, is to condemn? Who's greater than God? Who knows all things? Who loves in such a way that's greater than God that he can say you are justified? You are forgiven. You are made alive. My very spirit lives in you. Who is greater to say no? You're still condemned. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or your own condemning heart? Paul says no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where do you go to reassure your heart before God? How do you set your heart at rest in his presence? What is the sweet, oblivious antidote to a condemning heart? It is the character and majesty and grace of God himself, especially as he has shown it to us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. He is greater than your heart, and he knows all things. He knows the deepest parts about you. He he knows things you don't even want to think and admit about yourself. And yet in Christ, he says you're justified, forgiven, made alive, renewed, adopted into his family. And there is therefore now no condemnation for you. What do you do when your heart condemns you what do you do whether you are a Christian or whether you are not the answer is the same you repent of believing the condemnation and you believe in the person and work of Jesus you repent of believing that you are too far gone you repent of believing that God's love couldn't extend to you You repent for actually believing that you've done too much. You've gone too far. And you agree with God about your sin. And then you receive his forgiveness through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The answer is the same for both. 
you treasure the grandeur and the majesty of God himself as he has shown it to us through his son, Jesus. You don't take sin lightly. John's been saying this over and over and over again. You don't take sin lightly. Taking sin lightly will lead to a conscience that's being seared. You take it seriously. And when there's conviction, you come to God and you agree with God about it. You confess your sin to God, but you receive his forgiveness. You trust the perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus, who loves us. God is greater than your heart. The finished work of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is, is the truest objective testimony to the greatness, the height, the breadth, the width, the depth of God's love and demonstration of his power. How do you set your heart at rest? You treasure who God is as he has revealed himself, especially in his son. And John says, when that happens, with that comes confidence. With that comes confidence. Look at verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if we've set our heart at rest before God, we have confidence before God. How does God feel about you? This is why I asked the question. How does God feel about you? Whether you are living with a sense of condemnation or confidence will dictate what your relationship with God is like. How does he feel about you? And on what basis are you, are you coming to that conclusion? John is saying for those who put their faith and their trust in the person and work of Jesus and put their hearts at rest before God, you have confidence, confidence in the presence of God, confidence in the presence of God. He's already said that for those who set their heart at rest through grace, when Jesus returns, we will look at him eye to eye and we will have confidence and we won't shrink back in shame when he returns. He's going to say in chapter four that when Jesus returns and he delivers his final judgment over all of humanity, we will look at him eye to eye and we will have confidence confidence knowing that we will be with him for all of eternity and we will be made like him. In chapter five, John's gonna actually say that because of this confidence that comes through the person and work of Jesus, that we have access to God, such bold access that if we come to him and ask anything, if it's in accord to his will, we can expect to receive it. We have confidence that at the end, when we stand before God, we will know that our sins are forgiven and paid for through the person and work of Christ. Confidence then, and we have confidence now. Confidence to rush, to rush, to not walk, to not be timid, but to rush into his presence. We have confident access to God. And I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about that. I mean, the very beginning of this letter the thing that John points the church to, the thing that he directs their attention to, to, for joy, is this fellowship that we have with God the Father, with his son Jesus, and with the Holy Spirit, that we have fellowship with the God of the universe. And John is saying that when our hearts are at rest in him because our trust is in the person and work of Jesus, we have confident access to God. It's staggering. 
The only way I could even come close to giving you a human example is to say if, if in this moment, while I'm talking, I, I got quiet, and you all wonder what was happening, and President Obama and his family walked in the back, arguably one of the most powerful men in the entire universe, each of us would, would have a measure of reserve about how we approached him, wouldn't we? I mean, out of respect for his position. I mean, we'd have a measure of reserve for how we came up to him, what we said to him, you know, how we responded around him. But do you know who doesn't have that same kind of timidity? His daughters. By virtue of their relationship with their father, they can come into his presence, come straight to his seat in the Oval Office with confidence, with boldness, not because of anything inherent in them, but because of their relationship with the Father. They have access with confidence and boldness and know that in coming to him, that in a sense they can ask anything of him. And if it was in accord with his desire and what he felt was best for them, they can have confidence that he would give it to them as a good father. And what John is saying is that this is the very relationship that you and I have with the God of the universe. That because of his son, Jesus, we have been made children of God. And we have the privilege to come boldly, the writer of Hebrews says, with confidence to the very throne of God's grace. Such confidence and boldness that we can ask. We can come to him with anything. And we can have confidence and expectation that if it's in accord with his will, we should expect to receive it. This is... (laughs) This is what is true for us as followers of Christ. And his will ultimately for every single one of us is to not only receive but to treasure the saving news, the good news or the gospel of his son Jesus and to delight, to treasure, to rest in, to lean into his grace to assure our hearts before him. Whether that's right now for the first time or whether it's the first time in a very long time, you can set your heart at rest before God as you confess your need for God, as you agree with God about your sin, as you agree with God about your desperate need for him. And you can be confident that you will receive from God the forgiveness that comes only from him. And you can live with confidence assuring your heart before him that not because of anything that you do or any rules that you keep but just the simple obedience to delight in his son to delight in his grace you will be forgiven by God and your heart can be set at rest before him God does not expect you to go through your life Worrying and wondering about whether or not you really belong to him. That's not his desire for you. Every single one of us has the decision to make this morning. As a follower of Christ or not, this morning, will, will you resist God's grace? Will you reject his son? Or will you rest in God's faithfulness and God's grace? and live in the redemption that is yours through the person and work of Jesus. If not, I hope you have a better plan. 
what does God think about you? If you are a follower of Christ, God sees you in his son, Jesus, because your life is now hidden in him. And here's what that means. In Jesus, there is nothing that you can ever do that would make God love you any more than he already does because of Jesus. And there's nothing that you have ever done or could ever do that would make God love you less. This is the confidence. This is the confidence that is yours through faith in the person and work of Jesus. Let me pray for us this morning. God, we thank you for your love for us. We, we thank you, Lord, that your word says that you are love. And we thank you that you loved us first. And we thank you that you demonstrate your love for us through the life and the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. We thank you that you have sent us your Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to bring your love and real life, real life into our hearts. God, we need your mercy. We need your mercy. We fall short of your word to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. We fall short every day. In our desire for you, we are at best lukewarm. All of our motives and all of our intentions, even at their best, are mixed. We want the things we, we ought not want. We get irritated at the very things, <laughs> the very things we see displayed in other people that are true about our own self. God, help us to see the mercy of Christ. Help us to see your love as you demonstrated it to us through Jesus and help us to savor it and treasure it and trust it for what it is. Give us the power to comprehend your love. Give our hearts that are so prone to condemning us. Give our hearts the strength to receive your good news give life to the parts of our hearts that cannot feel what needs to be felt, that cannot feel the depth of your love, the strength of your love, the purity of your love. Give us the power to comprehend, as your word says, with all the saints, what the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of your love that you demonstrated in Jesus that surpasses all knowledge. It's greater than all knowledge. Lord, help us to be filled with all the fullness, all the fullness of your love. We ask this, Lord, for your namesake, your glory and our joy. Amen.